Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Florida Politics, powered by Gannett. The Florida House approves a ban on abortions after 15 weeks and a $200 million cut to school districts with mass mandates. Trump takes heat for keeping White House documents at his Palm Beach home instead of turning them over to archivists. And a new poll shows Governor Ron DeSantis in a strong position heading into the 2022 election. Hello, I'm Sarasota Herald Tribune political editor Zach Anderson. And those are some of the stories I'll be discussing today with Gannett State Capitol reporter John Kennedy and Palm Beach Post politics editor Antonio Fins. But first... That music means it's time for our pick a number segment. Uh, Antonio, you have a number for us today? Yeah, I'm going to impress John because this week I'm picking a number that is political and also the title of a rock and roll ballad, and that would be one. Testing John's knowledge of rock and roll history here. Uh, John, how about you? <laughs> Zach Antonio knows I'm a sucker for uh, 70s uh, rock, I guess. <laughs> or something, yeah. But uh, but now here, my number this week is again in the uh, in the stratosphere. Zach, I, I've got a 3.3 billion. Okay, 3.3 billion. And I am going to go with a lucky seven today. Remember those numbers, folks. We'll tell you what they mean in Florida politics at the end of the show. Well, Florida's legislative session is really starting to heat up with the Florida House passing two extremely controversial proposals this week. The House approved a ban on abortions after 15 weeks after an emotional debate uh, and also passed a budget that cuts 200 million from 12 school districts that implemented mass mandates to protect from COVID-19. John, Let's talk about the school funding cut first. It was also notable this week that Governor Ron DeSantis seemed to get behind this education budget reduction after first voicing opposition to it. This seems likely, uh, I think, to be a campaign issue in the fall. Stripping money from education is always pretty controversial. I remember when Rick Scott faced a lot of pushback when when he first came, uh, became governor. Uh, you know, he cut the education budget by quite a lot. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it really uh, was one of those issues that people, um, uh, you know, attacked him on during uh, the, his reelection campaign. Florida Republicans, though, they seem determined uh, to make an example of these uh, school districts. What do you make of this? Well, I think the uh, the governor, uh, yeah, it, it took him a little while to get on board with this uh, effort. Um, he had received uh, assurance, though, from the House sponsor, Representative Randy Fine of Brevard County, that this $200 million wouldn't directly hit classrooms or teacher resources, but rather, as, as Fine has said, it's going to cut school dollars that are intended to be used to pay district administrators who make $100,000 or more a year. Right. They've been going out of their way because, you know, uh, you, know you can just see the campaign ads, you know, slashing money for kids, slashing money for your, yeah. your kid's teacher. And so they've been going out of their way to say, no, we're, we're going after bureaucrats. We're going after administrators. Um, you think that that uh, makes it easier to sell? I mean, 
school administrators, and you're talking about principals, assistant principals, people, you know, people who help make the district run. Um, it's not uh, like these people, you don't need them for to, to help uh, uh, make, make sure that your kid is getting an education. Yeah, but I, th I think that was enough to, uh, you know, sway DeSantis that, oh, he's got another boogeyman he can, uh, you know, attack, and that would be, you know, bloated bureaucracy, I guess. Now, I, I think most people are skeptical that, you know, this cut will be really so precise when it comes to how districts scale back this money. Most feel that this loss of money to some of the state's largest counties, uh, in this case of the, uh, of the dozen, will be uh, eventually, uh, it'll make its way into schools. So uh, scaling back of uh, some kind of programs or services is probably what you will somehow see out of this, because that's just the way it seems to happen in public schools. Um, I think uh, DeSantis hasn't really uh, fully embraced uh, initially the, the political potential of this when uh, he, he downplayed the idea at first and he played up his own concept, which is still alive, of having the legislature enact uh, a measure that would expand legal causes of action and let parents sue districts specifically if they felt that their child was harmed by having to wear a mask. So there's another uh, attack on, you know, district administrators. I, I think all this plays into an even bigger goal for Republicans, and that's to rile up that anti-mask community in these 12 counties that now are facing a loss of school money because of uh, the decisions of their school boards. Uh, it's no secret, uh, Zach, you've written a lot about this point, uh, that conservatives, uh, uh, you know, even the far right are intent on winning the school board seats uh, around the state. They're, they're mad at some of the school boards that defied DeSantis on masks and that they're from they're, they're Republican leaning counties in some cases where uh, more liberal minded or maybe just kind of more conscientious types are actually the people being elected to the school board. But they're not responding reflexively to these, uh, uh, you know, right wing kind of causes. That's an interesting point, John. So you think that, um, you know, school board candidates could use this funding cut and say, hey, look, your your school board member voted uh, for mass and now we've lost all this money. You know, uh, let's kick them out of office. Yeah, I was uh, speaking uh, with a, a, a mother in Sarasota County uh, just the other day who said that, uh, you know, this is a political card that they're seeing. She she. Uh, said that during the school board meeting uh, this week, during a you know routine public comment period, some of the anti-mask, uh, many of them vaccine skeptics, uh, stood before the school board and cast this up to them that you know sort of like thanks to you school board members, dollars are lost here. So I think uh, DeSantis and other leading Republicans in this case see its political potential going into fall elections. Uh, Randy Fine has talked about how his own Brevard County is among those that will see dollars uh, cycled out to other counties because that's part of this mix where they'll take the 200 million away from the 12 that defied DeSantis on masks and distribute it to the 55 other counties in the state that you know, as they like to say, followed the law. Um, but uh, in this case, fine. Uh, he, he didn't mention this postscript that, um, you know, another reason to defeat the current school board is uh, one of the reasons that uh, this idea of trimming dollars from his home county and others 
um, is, is on the table right now. We'll see what the Senate does. Uh, it, it's a two against one fight right now in the legislature where you have the House and the governor on board with this idea. Two against one fights usually uh, favor the, the majority. Well, I, I think you're right. If this goes through, this could be a, a very interesting election issue uh, statewide and uh, in these uh, school board races for sure. Well, you know, the, there was another hugely uh, controversial bill uh, that passed this week that's getting um, national attention. Uh, the, the House moved ahead with its uh, ban on abortions after 15 weeks. Um, you know, we've talked about this before. It, it, it kind of seems like a foregone uh, conclusion uh, at this point, but it, it's still very interesting. I mean, this is uh, overturning decades of, of settled law in Florida um, and uh, is kind of looked at as a direct assault on uh, Roe v. Wade, but it's very much um, in line with with the trends that we're seeing in these uh, conservative states, where a lot of them are are pushing uh, legislation that is an assault on on Roe v. Wade, with the expectation that the Supreme Court um, could could chip away at it. Um, you know, this uh, typically uh, in Florida and around the country, you've seen uh, abortions be legal up to the point of fetal viability, uh, which is uh, around 24 weeks. So so this would um, you know, uh, make it nine weeks sooner that uh, abortion would be illegal. Um, John, uh, this, like we said, it, it does seem like uh, this is gonna pass, but it's still getting a lot of um, emotional debate. Uh, you know, went on for hours yesterday uh, in the house. There were protesters who I think were kicked out. Uh, a pretty, pretty emotional uh, bill, isn't it? Well, it was, yeah, and both sides are, you know, devoted to their positions on this. Uh, as you mentioned, this 15-week standard uh, is remarkable. It, it would take it down in Florida from 24 weeks, which it has been for, for decades. Uh, the 15-week standard is the same as what Mississippi approved in 2018, which never went into effect because it was blocked by a federal court. But the United States Supreme Court, uh, which has heard arguments in that Mississippi case, is expected to rule in uh, in June with Florida's law, if it if it does get approved ultimately by the Senate, which we anticipate, Florida's law would take effect July 1st. So clearly Republicans are assuming that the court will support the 15-week standard. But it's a big change. You know, it's a, it's a victory for those who have been opposing abortions for years, uh, although even proponents in this case say it's largely symbolic in that the overwhelming majority of Florida's 71,000 abortions each year occurred during the first trimester of pregnancy, and they would not be stopped by this law. Uh, still, you know, debate went until midnight in the House before this bill was passed. That's kind of a rarity um, with uh, Democrats are especially livid about the measure not having exceptions in the case of rape or incest. Um, it, that's something Republicans uh, defend that, you know, again, it goes back to this first trimester. So even if you're sexually assaulted, right, you got up until the first trimester to, to you know, presumably uh, seek an abortion if that is the uh, the, the goal of the woman. Um, it, it passed in the end uh, on a mostly party line vote and will likely kind of face the same kind of numbers and debate in the Republican controlled Senate when it comes up there in uh, the next week or so. Uh, so it's going to happen this year in Florida. We're, we're still awaiting Senate action, but the, the real place to watch now, I guess, will be the United States Supreme Court and how far justices will go on changing the abortion landscape in the most significant way in more than 50 years. And uh, of course, 
The next thing is uh, how that will play politically going forward into the uh, fall elections. Yeah. So a lot going on um, in the Florida legislature this week. Also a lot going on over uh, in Mar-a-Lago, where uh, former uh, President Donald Trump uh, has been getting a lot of attention because uh, he has been keeping uh, official White House records at his house there uh, in Palm Beach, including classified documents uh, in possible violation of the president. Records Act. Uh, that's been generating a, a political firestorm, and a number of Florida lawmakers could be at the center of the ongoing saga. The House Oversight Committee is expected to launch an inquiry. The committee includes three Florida lawmakers, one Democrat and two Republicans. Antonio, you've been following this story. What should people know about where this stands? Well, so far, I can tell you that uh, I logged a career landmark here. I never thought I'd use the words Trump and toilet in the lead of a front page story in the <laughs> Palm Beach Post. But then you know what? This is just where the world takes it. Look, there are a lot of uh, twists and turns in the story, even almost daily. So let me tell you where it stands now. I mean, here is what we know for certain. Former President Trump is in possession of roughly 15 boxes of White House records in apparent violation of the Presidential Records Act. And the National Archives and Record Administration, or NARA, wants them back and has been demanding them back ever since the nation's archivists learned that Trump had those records and files. That's the first part of this controversy. The other is that Trump reportedly has been destroying other documents throughout his tenure as president including one in a, a one allegation in a forthcoming book that reports that Trump flushed pieces of some of those documents down a White House toilet, an assertion, by the way, that the former president denied last week. Now, the Trump carrying documents part of the political firestorm is not a totally new revelation. You know, the Palm Beach Post reported back in the summer of 2018 that Trump was tearing up these documents even while he was, especially when he was at Mar-a-Lago, and then either AIDS or you know, archivists somehow had to got pieces of these these documents and taped them back together. So, again, Trump has denied those claims, but that part of the story isn't entirely new. Uh, but nonetheless, those are the two twin records controversies. Now, exactly what is in those boxes that Trump has at Mar-a-Lago? Well, we don't really know for sure. According to Trump, the boxes contain, quote unquote, letters, records, newspapers, magazines and various articles. Last week, he said that he simply kept the documents because he wanted to use them for his presidential library, which was uh, quite the uh, the revelation because in the last year we have heard him saying just about nothing about what is the top priority for most ex-presidents, building a presidential library and museum. Uh, so the claim that he's, you know, he's thinking about a library and a museum was surprising um, in, in light of the fact that he has spent the entire year pushing his baseless claims of 2020 election fraud and prepping supposedly for a 2024 comeback campaign. So, you know, if your plan is to win back the White House, why would you even be raising money or spending time on designing a post-presidency museum? Now, the other issue here is that the January 6th investigating committee uh, claims that there are missing records in the documents that they were supposed to get from Trump's White House collection. Those are the ones that were ordered to be given up by a U.S. Supreme Court ruling back at, I believe, at the end of 2021 or early 2022, uh, which raises a question, could those missing documents be in the boxes that Trump has at Mar-a-Lago? And the other yet to be determined mystery here is whether Trump broke federal law by simply keeping the documents. NARA has reportedly referred the matter to the Department of Justice, and I say reportedly because NARA would not officially comment. But others are saying plenty. The American Historical Association said that the, the acts of destruction and noncompliance with the Presidential Records Act demonstrate 
blatant contempt for both the rule of law and the principles of tr the transparency that are the, con the, the bedrock of the nation's democracy. And, and the Democrats on the House Oversight Committee, as you mentioned, Zach, have said they're going to investigate. Western Democrat uh, Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz said this week that you know the public is the one that owns these presidential records, not Trump. And she called in the Justice Department to determine if criminal laws are broken and then seek accountability if they, if they were. She also ripped Trump for consistently and flagrantly trashing that law that preserves and protects vital documents for the people and history to review. And But Naples Republican Congressman Byron Donalds, who also serves on the committee, blasted what he said was, you know, Democrats' rabid obsession with Trump and insisted he wouldn't play along with their baseless criminal investigation. He said this committee already spends too much time investigating issues outside its purview, ignoring the multitude of crises uh, impacting the country. So there you go. But even as partisan lines are drawn, it looks more like Trump White House files may come to light. This week, the Biden White House said they would hand over Trump White House visitor logs from January 6th of 2021 to the House committee. So one way or the other, gentlemen, Trump's White House papers and records will remain in the headlines. Well, Antonio, I hope it's uh, the last time uh, you have to write about presidential toilets, but uh, it sounds like maybe there's a little bit more to this story uh, going on. Well, with nine months to go before the uh, election, signs keep emerging that DeSantis is in a strong position to win a second term. A new Mason-Dixon poll released this week found that 53% of Florida voters approve of the governor's job performance. The poll also had DeSantis leading each of his potential Democratic challengers, and it found that the leading candidate to take on the governor right now is Charlie Crist, the Democratic congressman from St. Petersburg, who's also uh, former Republican governor of Florida. He leads Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Freed and State Senator Annette Tadeo in the Democratic primary. John, the good news keeps uh, coming for DeSantis. It does seem like there's there's little in the way of stopping Ron DeSantis right now. The uh, the governor is holding steady on his approval rating, uh, 53%. That's the same as it was a year ago this time. And uh, when the poll breaks down into favorable, unfavorable views uh, people have of the candidates, DeSantis has a better balance than uh, Charlie Crist, his leading uh, Democratic rival. Uh, more people view Crist unfavorably than favorably. And that's not a good sign for the Democrats' leading candidate. Uh, but Chris's familiarity with uh, Florida voters is one of the reasons he is currently the top Democrat. People know him. But as the poll also suggests, uh, not everyone really like him uh, or, or I assume is, is ready for another four years of Charlie Crist, who, uh, of course, was the state's Republican governor from 2007 to early 2011. Uh, he, he later left the party and eventually uh, became a Democrat. But uh, the poll shows that the, the only region of the state that DeSantis is unpopular is southeast Florida, uh, Miami-Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach, which is becoming more and more a completely uh, different state than the rest of uh, red-leaning Florida, it seems. But when it uh, it's often said that, you know, the toss up uh, Interstate four corridor in the central part of the state is where races are won or lost in Florida. Well, you know, DeSantis has really strong approval ratings in Tampa Bay and central Florida. And he uh, leads Chris there uh, by double digits and head to head uh, analysis in this Mason Dixon poll. So, so what's left for Democrats? Uh, you, you know, we've seen DeSantis get way far right since he took office uh, and during that early stage of his uh, governorship, uh, he he was at least uh, you know pre-pandemic a little bit more of a political centrist, 
But uh, now, you know, he has just gotten further and further right. You wonder, you know, will he get out too far over his skis with his appeal to the Trump base? Uh, you know, it, could that hurt him in a general election this November? Uh, the Democrats at this point seem to need a, a, a tide turner of some kind. And President Biden's unpopularity with voters nationally isn't helping any Democrat, let alone those trying to catch a fire against DeSantis. Uh, that, that has to change or at least subside for any of the uh, Florida Democrats to have a chance. And uh, DeSantis has to do something, it seems at this point, that really rocks Florida voters' confidence in him. Uh, I don't know what it's going to be, but it's uh, tough as a Democratic candidate to maybe be running and wishing and hoping for a scandal or a cataclysm of some kind that, that might help you as a candidate. You know, he, Charlie Crist has a little bit of a history with that. Uh, in his failed 2010 race for Senate, uh, he, which he lost to Republican Marco Rubio, that, that, that happened even after the Deepwater Horizon oil spill uh, followed, uh, you know, a summer's worth of tourism on Florida's Gulf Coast, and it, it badly damaged the environment. Uh, Chris spent a lot of that summer walking the beach, uh, calling uh, a special session of the legislature and uh, looking pretty concerned about uh, what was going on with uh, the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. And uh, after all that, Rubio was elected. So, uh, you know, Zach, uh, I think there's a lot of political wisdom in the in the refrain of that old Jerry Reed country song. When you hot, you hot. When you're not, you're not. <laughs> a lot of good musical references in this podcast today. Antonio, um, one of the interesting numbers in this poll uh, is the governor's job approval rating with Hispanics. The poll found that 50 percent of Florida Hispanics approve of the job uh, that DeSantis is doing. Now, this is, a uh, uh, you know, the number of Hispanics surveyed in this poll was, you know, relatively small. So you got to take this uh, with a with a grain of salt, but it's, it's still pretty in interesting. That's a good sign for DeSantis and a bad sign uh, for Democrats who struggled with Hispanics in 2020 and were uh, really soundly beaten by Trump in Florida. Yeah, it actually looks to be a worse sign for Democrats than, than the positive sign for DeSantis. Look, you know, um, and the reason that matters and it matters a lot is because Latino voters in Florida carry a lot of weight in decided, deciding who's going to win a statewide and local election. And John just mentioned, particularly Southeast Florida is a bastion for Democrats. Well, that's where a lot of these more conservative Hispanics are. And the growth of that electorate will erode, you know, what is a, a strong base for, for Democrats or the, perhaps the, the last of the, the, the Democratic strong bases in the state. If the trends we see in the Tampa and Orlando area continue, you know, look, and we already saw, you know, we already saw what happened in 2020 when Trump did extremely well with Miami-Dade Cubans. You know, his the turnout that he got there uh, really largely contributed to that 3.4 percent margin of victory, which is a virtual landslide in this state. And by doing so, those voters in Miami-Dade turned what was a tight contest into a route by Sunshine, Stan Sunshine State standards. That DeSantis is faring well isn't just concern for Democrats. It's also in some ways not totally unsurprising. Look, many Florida Latinos, and we said this on the podcast before, regardless of nationality, they work in small and medium-sized enterprises and businesses. And, and for that reason, they have embraced the governor's keep the economy open COVID policy. Yeah, Florida is closing in on an alarming 
70,000 COVID deaths, including a lot of Hispanics. And critics have pointed out that a lot of those deaths could have been avoided. The governor and state health officials had pushed, you know, preventive measures like wearing a mask and vaccinations rather than relying on after the infections treatment. But, you know, it's suggested among Hispanics, DeSantis is not paying a political price for, for that. Um, in addition, it's pollsters at Florida International University, uh, their Cuban Studies Institute, what have they said repeatedly is that, you know, Republicans just know how to talk to that massive growing voter Cuban voter block in, in, in Miami-Dade. And they do so by stressing small business and other issues. And I, I would suspect, you know what, that Republicans also know how to talk to other factions down there, the Colombian Americans and Venezuelan Americans that are becoming a bigger part of the electorate. I would also argue that maybe Republicans also know how to talk to the Puerto Rican voters in Central Florida. You know, I covered some of those Latinos for Trump events up there during the fall of 2020, and it was clear the GOP was making connections there with that very important Hispanic voting bloc along the I-4 corridor that John just noted. Uh, you know, same for, you know, so much has been made about how Florida's GOP has been, you know, crushing voter registration efforts to the point of turning what was a Republicans to Democrats deficit of 270,000 voters four years ago into what is now, as of the end of January, the nearly 70,000 voter advantage in Florida. I'd be willing to bet that uh, GOP voter registrations of Hispanics across the state is a significant reason for that turnaround. And all this points to yet another landfill tall hurdle for you know, Democrats to leap in this year's election. So it's interesting, Antonio, you, you do think that the governor's whole keep Florida free, keep businesses open, no mask mandates, that his whole uh, COVID spiel over the last uh, year, year and a half, the, his uh, plays pretty well with Latino voters. Yeah. And I, I remember, you know, back in, in May when they started in May of 2020, when they started opening up the economy at a much faster rate than what the White House guidelines at the time said to do, that it was applauded down here. I mean, I saw both, I mean, everywhere, people were just happy to get this, the economy back. And, and a lot of it has to do that, you know, many Latinos here and across the state are very dependent on, on the economy. They, they, they own small businesses or they work in these small, medium-sized businesses. A lot of them are, are in the service industry, hotels, restaurants, attractions. And they really suffered a lot during the shutdown and, and during the, 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 the ensuing restrictions after we started reopening the economy. So, yeah, I, I think it's very popular uh, among that group. Well, this is, I think, a really important uh, story to watch because, um, you know, uh, like we said, uh, Trump's improvement with uh, Hispanic voters really um, locked down uh, Florida for him. And if DeSantis can repeat that, and now this, like I said, these poll numbers, are it's a relatively small sample size. So, um, but if he can repeat that, if he can do well with Hispanic voters, uh, he's going to be really really tough to beat. Uh, we'll move on to some numbers here. Uh, John, you want to tell us about your big number? Yes, I can. My, my 3.3 billion is the dollar bottom line difference between two different state budget proposals for next year that are passing out of the House and Senate. The, uh, the Senate's would be a record $108.6 billion spending plan, and the House's would be a record $105.3 billion budget. Now, now state budgets have only topped $100 billion once, and that was last year, helped by additional billions of dollars in federal aid. But they they look like they're they're here to stay. Uh, you know, another sign of Florida's perpetual growth, I guess. 
Now, now Washington money is helping float the state budget this year, but in fairness, the state's own robust economy is fueling it too, with uh, tax collections up all across the board. Uh, we've spoken in earlier shows about how tax collections from documentary tax stamps on real estate transactions are soaring, but it's uh, it also is way up is uh, sales tax receipts, which uh, three out of four state tax dollars come from. Uh, so money is no object in Tallahassee this year, uh, but lawmakers will have to spend the closing weeks of the session uh, basically trying to somewhat pare down these spending plans and uh, at least reach uh, an agreement on the level of spending. Uh, they have to come up with a, a consensus budget by their deadline is March 11th. That's the uh, end of the session. Um, and, you know, it, it's in this case, they're, they're, they're not spending everything they have either. Uh, Governor DeSantis in his budget proposal recommended $15 billion in reserves, setting aside that kind of money for rainy day and more. Uh, and the, the House and Senate are likely to come in with that kind of leftover as well. But uh, the House is even creating an inflation fund, a $2 billion kitty that will allow state agencies to tap it over the coming year if their you know, routine purchases, their, their cost of doing business, their usual expenses are higher than anticipated because of the inflation that we're all dealing with now. But, uh, but of course, this being a Republican legislature, the House has managed to get a dig into the White House with uh, its inflation fund. Uh, th this, this new inflation reserve is called the budgeting for inflation that drives elevated needs. It's the Biden fund. If you use the initials from that budgeting for inflation that drives elevated needs. So um, anyway, Republicans are having fun with uh you know, the economy, I guess, at the expense of uh, Democrat Joe Biden. Uh, wow. Uh, that's a, a, a pretty uh, interesting dig at the president uh, hidden in the House budget there. Um, and uh, as you said, some plenty of negotiations uh, still to come between the House and the Senate, including over this uh, these school funding cuts um, that we mentioned earlier. Um, you know, the Senate uh, does not have that in its budget. And, uh, you know, uh, one of the senators that I talked to said he doesn't support it at this point. So um, plenty more uh, to come uh, in that debate. Uh, Antonio, you want to tell us about your number? Yeah, uh, one stands for both the number of the Florida House legislation cracking down on public protest last year, and the title song of rock band U2's hit, One. Let me explain the connection. Back in the 2021 Florida legislature, House Bill 1 was a so-called anti-riot or anti-protest bill. It was passed in a knee-jerk moment of Florida Republican saber-rattling against Black Lives Matter street protests after the killing of motorist George Floyd in Minneapolis. One of the provisions in the Florida legislation, which was signed into law by Governor DeSantis in April of last year, took specific aim at street protesters who blocked vehicular traffic. While the law was aimed at Black Lives Matter protests, it was actually first raised last summer when Cuban-Americans living here in Florida took to blocking streets and highways in support of the Patria and Vida democracy movement in Cuba. At first, the state's Republican politicos did the reverse rubbernecking. Instead of craning their neck to view what was happening on the highways, they strained to look the other way. Until that is, they got called out for the obvious hypocrisy of promulgating a law to crack down on street protests and then shrugging it off because they supported the cause of the, of the protesters blocking the street. That forced DeSantis and other Republicans to politely ask the protesters to not block streets and highways. Now, 
you can make the argument that the invoking of the anti-protest law deflated the momentum of the Cuba protests on both sides of the Florida Straits. Remember, the Patria y Vida Cuba protests were largely driven by social media. Cuban protesters on the island saw the reaction in Florida and drew energy from it. There was this synergy that both sides fed off. So you can argue that Cubans on the island saw the Florida demonstrations come to an end and concluded that once again they were on their own. You know, it's, it's, if so, it's one of those be careful what you ask for. But wait, there's more this week because we, now we have Florida Chief Financial Officer Jimmy Petronas issuing a proclamation in support of the Canadian Trucker Freedom Convoy that is protesting Canada's COVID policies by, wait for it, blocking roadways and highways, which of course would be way illegal in Florida. So two conclusions from this. One, so far from Cuban Americans to COVID freedom fighting truckers, it seems HV1 has so far impacted factions on the right more than on the left. The other is how Palm Beach columnist Frank Cherubino wrote this week about Petronas's embrace of the Canadian truckers, you know, uh, that would be in violation of Florida law. As Frank wrote, Florida isn't opposed to all street clogging traffic stopping protests, just the ones when the protesters are black. Either way, as the U2 song one says, and HB1 is making painfully clear when it comes to public protests in Florida, we're one but we're not the same. Yeah, it would be pretty interesting to see if there was a uh, trucker protest in Florida, whether they would uh, invoke uh, HB1, uh, but uh, which, you know, uh, there there has been rumors about uh, potential um, that those protests expanding outside of Canada. So maybe we'll see. My number is seven, as in Senator Marco Rubio currently leads Democratic challenger Val Demings by seven percentage points in the new Mason-Dixon poll released this week. Like DeSantis, Rubio also is favored to win re-election, and the poll was good news for him overall. But there are some signs of weakness for Rubio in that survey, namely the fact that he currently is at 49% support. The pollsters noted that the candidates below 50% support are more vulnerable. Rubio has almost universal name recognition, while just 68% of Florida voters know who Demings is. As the race heats up and Demings starts to boost her name recognition, she could close the gap with Rubio. But a major drag, as John mentioned earlier, is President Joe Biden. The poll found that just 40% of Florida voters approve of Biden's job performance, and that comes on top of a USA Today Suffolk University poll that found uh, Biden's job approval rating at 39% in Florida. So the president's rating pretty pretty down in the gutter uh, in the state at this point, and that could be a hurdle for Demings because how people feel about the president often impacts how they see the rest of his party. That wraps up another episode of Inside Florida Politics. I want to thank our audio production guru, Thomas Cordy. Thanks to all of you for listening. We're out of here.